The worst of it, quite frankly, is right where my main office is in Jefferson City, Missouri, the very capital, which is overrun with special interests that have completely corrupted that government there. I hate to say it, but it's true. A lot of people there are not looking out for you. They're looking out for themselves. That's State Auditor Tom Schweik moments after he won a second term in office. I'm Jason Rosenbaum with St. Louis Public Radio for the Politically Speaking Podcast. Joining me in studio is Joe Manis. And in Jefferson City, Marshall Griffin. We wanted to take a few minutes before we talked with Senator Will Krause of Lee Summit to provide a bit of remembrance to Schweik, who who died last week from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It was a situation that I think rattled a lot of people throughout the state. I know that it's rattled me because I, I knew and talked with him on a regular basis. And I thought it would be appropriate to start off this show kind of talking about his legacy, what he brought to state government, and kind of how he'll be remembered. Um, Joe, you kind of dealt with him when he first entered yes. into statewide office. Just very simply, what were your impressions of him then, and what were your impressions of him throughout the years? Well, many of our listeners may know that Schweik came into state government with a fairly um, fat dossier as far as federal involvement. He basically had been uh, a key um, aide to former Senator John Danforth in in Danforth's numerous jobs after Danforth retired. Uh, Schweik had been uh, the chief of staff during the Waco investigation. Schweik ended up being um, uh, chief of staff for several ambassadors at the U.N. He ended up being a special ambassador in Afghanistan overseeing the anti-narcotic program. He was a very intense man, and in some ways um, he was not typical of many people who get into politics and that they tend to be more um, extroverted. Schweik, while he was very witty and he was really good on the— uh, he he loved music, and he, though, was a bit more of an introvert, in some ways a very intense man. Um, both parties gave him fairly good marks for how he ran the office as state auditor. He did a lot of audits. Um, he got into office in 2010 by defeating uh, then-Democratic incumbent Susan Monte. It was a Republican year. But Schweik uh, ended up doing well enough that in 2014, the Democrats opted not to put an opponent against him. Which was an unprecedented move. Marshall, what were kind of your impressions of Tom Schweik? Very, very similar to Joe. He, he did come across as someone who was rather intense, but also someone who was passionate about what he did. Um, he, his office was actually, the state auditor's office is, is actually down the hall from, from our bureau in the Capitol building. So I would run into... Uh, into Tom Schweik every now and then. Sometimes uh, he was alone, sometimes with other staff members, and he would always say hello. Um, sometimes he would say, hey, Marshall, we're going to be releasing an audit on this and this tomorrow. He, he actually would, you know, he, he didn't, you know, a lot of politicians and a lot of elected officials, you know, have this cone of silence or a cone of secrecy around them, you know, that, you know, that nothing gets out to the media, you know, in, in some way that's not orchestrated or funneled. Uh, to make sure that uh, everything, that every duck's in a row. And Tom Schweik would say, hey, hey, we're releasing this tomorrow, Marshall, blah, blah, blah. You know, the one hobby that Tom Schweik had that uh, uh, to me may be a, a bit unusual, but a very fascinating hobby, he liked to collect movie memorabilia. And la I believe it was back in January, um, both uh, David Lieb and I ran into uh, to Tom Schweik. It was after he had uh, 
made it a reveal about, uh, about some audit that he had uh, his office had done. And he got to talking about uh, buying an autographed movie, fo- movie poster of, I believe it was Greta Garbo. And he was very passionate about collecting movie memorabilia. And that's something I'll always remember about him, just, just how much enjoyment out of life that uh, collecting rare movie artifacts memorabilia uh, gave to him. And as well, I, I, it, just, it was just such a surreal day at the Capitol last Thursday. You could, you could just feel the somber mood settle over as the news spread. Um, it was just really, it, it was a hard day at the Capitol uh, after, um, after Tom Schweik um, took his life. Well, one of the things I'd like to mention about Schweik is whether one agreed or disagreed with him, he was gutsy. And in his kickoff speech for governor just a month ago, as in the clip that Jason played from his reelection thing, Schweik was going after some within his own party. Uh, partly he was uh, challenging rival Catherine Hennaway because she had taken a million dollars from uh, wealthy financier Rex Singfeld. He was challenging candidates to be a little more careful of how much money they took from a single source. He was very upfront on some things that would seem in some ways counter to what the Republican message is right now. Yeah, and I know that um, I guess some have labeled him a a not-so-good politician because he was so upfront that way. But I found actually his approach to be quite successful politically. I mean, as as we all know, it's really difficult to defeat a down-ballot statewide incumbent, which he did in 2010. He also defeated Alan Isett in a Republican primary when many probably thought he was the underdog in that contest. Yes. And I actually think that um, his move against Rex Singfeld was, in a, in a way, brilliant in, a, in some effects, not to disparage Singfeld or any candidates that take money We're from him. We're just talking tactically. But it basically put the Republicans in a situation where they were coming off as the opponents of Singfeld as an agenda. And if he had won the primary, it would have basically forced the Democrats into this awkward position, potentially, where they've spent all this time criticizing Rex Singfeld and his agenda. And more than likely, they would have had a gubernatorial candidate, Chris Coster, who had taken far more money from him than the Republican nominee. So I think that was actually tactically quite a smart move. And it was among many things that I think he did that were out of the box that I think proved him well successfully. Um, As far as impressions from me, I first encountered Schweik in 2009 when he was brought to the Missouri Senate by John Danforth. Um, I didn't really know him that well beforehand, and he had not been on my political radar at all. But he was toying with the idea of running for the U.S. Senate against Roy Blunt. He decided not to do that, and he ran for auditor. And to be truthful, I didn't really talk with him a lot after his election until he came on our podcast in 2013. And I found him, both when he was on mic and after mic, to be a very easy person to talk to. He was funny. He was self-deprecating. I think that he was earnest and honest when he was on our show. And I think that he was very serious about his job and making sure that he wasn't just using it as a political prop, that he was actually doing meaningful things for the office. And obviously, the auditor's office can be a springboard to other things, and I think that he was trying to do that. But I, I was just, you know, there have been instances over my short 
professional career where people who I've interviewed have have passed away. You know, Ed Robb died of a heart attack in 2011. I talked with him extensively. That was news that, you know, made me very sad, along with when Rory Ellinger or Ron Casey or Kathleen Burkett also passed away because I talked with all of them extensively. They were good people and they were great with the media as well. But this instance has shook me probably more than any of those just because of the way it happened. And, you know, not to get too personal, but I, I really wish the best for his family who are probably going through a hard time right now. Well, it just goes to show, without getting into um, judging what happens, is that politics takes a toll on everybody who's involved and takes a toll on the candidates, and they have to be willing to face a lot of insults, a lot of things that can happen. And it's just this shows kind of the serious, the serious side of all this. It's not just fun and games. It's not just Hollywood for, you know. <laughs> For politicians, this is what they often joke about. But I, I think Schweik will be missed, aside from just the, the raw fact that he was a person, but the fact that he did bring a lot of innovative ideas and he did challenge the status quo. And frankly, in, Gen- in uh, Jefferson City, there aren't too many on either side who do that. Yeah. And I just want to say this, you know, I have – I have people in my family who suffer from mental illness. I've had family members or extended family members commit suicide before. It's probably why this situation shook me more than anybody. And I'm I'm probably not the best messenger on this, but if you do need help, I mean, there are people that will talk to you. There's a, there's a national suicide prevention lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 that you can call. And that may not be the thing that cures everything. I know mental illness is a, is a long, hard process. I know that from experience. But I just want to convey as the host of a podcast that you're not alone here. There are people that love you. And I hope that this situation provides a touchstone for people to think about that. So I wanted to spend the, the first part of our podcast talking about that. Right now, we have an interview with State Senator Will Kraus, a Republican from Lee's Summit. He has gratefully agreed to be on from Jefferson City. He's a very talented, smart guy from um, the Kansas City area. And he's running for State Senate. I mean, I'm sorry, running for Secretary of State. He's already already won that office. (laughs) And um, we first talked with him about his district, which takes in portions of Jackson County. But we also talked with him kind of about his background, and this is what he had to say. I grew up on a small farm outside of Sedalia in Pettis County. I remember running around the creeks, swimming in the ponds, uh, fishing, hunting, uh, enjoyed the, the outside uh, wildlife and, and just being outside was growing up. And then uh, when I graduated from high school, I, I had a sense of service, and I joined the military and I'm still serving to them in the Missouri National Guard. Uh, after, also joined the military to, to get money for school, so did my first tour and came back uh, f- after uh, being at Fort Hood, Texas. Um, came back, went to college, got my commission, and then went to flight school uh, in 1998 and flew for the Army Reserves, did a little bit of time over in Iraq in 2003 and 2004, 
about 340 combat hours, uh, flight hours, then uh, came back and got into politics. How I got involved in politics was um, when I was in flight school, my I was very intrigued by what was happening at the national level, and con consequently I was complaining quite a bit. And my uh, wife at that point, uh, my my wife of 22 years this should be 23 years this summer uh said you need to need to shut up or run she got tired of me just talking about politics and so uh she encouraged me to get involved and when i got back from flight school in in uh, 99 2000 time frame i got involved in a group called raytown reaching for tomorrow and then decided to run for city council uh then in 2003 we got the the deployment notice and during that time frame, Senator Matt Bartle asked me to consider running for the Missouri House. I looked at my current state representative, which was a Democrat, and I felt that he did not represent my views and values. Who was it, by the way? Mike Sager. Oh, okay. actually, I, I remember. Wasn't he like a video game maker who was a little bit controversial, from yes. what I remember? Yes, yeah. he was. And uh, he had made a few enemies on the Republican side, so it was... Everybody did wanted to get rid of him uh, from the Republican side. And I believe he ran for state representative either in 14 or 12 and got a distant third, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. I think so it was 12. He, so, so I beat him in, in 2014. I mean, sorry, 2004. And then he ran for city council and lost. And then he came back and recently ran in a three-way race against Joe Runyon's. And my, my other opponent, my my first re-election was with Chris Moreno. Yeah, I was just going to say that's that was that was a humorous tinge to that race, the Joe Runyon's race, is you beat two out of three people in that contest. And actually, your showdown with Chris Moreno was actually a pretty close race because I guess your district was kind of split relatively evenly between Democrats and Republicans. It leaned Democrat. I mean, obviously, it beat a Democrat incumbent, so it leaned Democrat. And so my first re-election with Chris uh, was a was it was close but it was wasn't that close for that type of district it was a my district was about a 47 percent republican district um winnable by a republican obviously but it was a it was a tough race well one of the things that i noticed from just doing some research on you is when you were in the house you're one of the few republicans to vote against the medicaid cuts of 2005 as well as removing campaign finance limits in 2008 i know the two issues don't really go together but it kind of showcased that you were a more independent-minded Republican willing to go against your party on some big issues. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your decision-making on those and kind of your mentality that you had during your years in the House? Well, I think that when you are in office, you represent a district, and you listen to your constituents, and when it comes time to vote, uh, you hope you take that into consideration. And I know I did when I was in that, well, I do today, but I did in the House as well. Being in a, in a Democrat-leaning House district, I, I didn't feel that all of the cuts in 2000, I think it was five, when we passed the Medicaid reforms, uh, were, were appropriate, so I voted against the bill and um, likewise on other issues. Yeah. Now, now, since then, has your uh, position evolved on the Medicaid issue, or has your, or is it because your district has changed? Kind of how you, how do you see like those issues now that and campaign finance limits, and your position now is it the same or has it changed? Um, you know, I think that you represent a district, so you view the district, you listen to the people in the district and how it trends. Uh, so I'm in a much more Republican district now in the Missouri Senate. Uh, as far as Medicaid, I've always been a limited government um, elected official, so I've always thought government needs to, to, 
to not grow. And Medicaid continues continues to be the fastest growing part of our state budget. So I, I have any concern. I have concerns for any time we want to expand one of the fastest growing parts of our budget. Uh, we need to make sure we do it wisely and correctly, uh, and just don't just don't do it because the federal government is going to give us money. Now I want to talk a little bit about your 2010 contest because it was. Uh, an intriguing contest, even though I lived in St. Louis at the time, it was one of the marquee Republican primaries. And I don't even think that you were considered a candidate or a prime candidate for that contest in the early going. It was a situation where Brian Pratt, who was then the House pro tem, was kind of on a collision course with, strangely, his fellow uh, law firm partner, Brian Yates. But he decided not to run and I guess that you ran instead along with um, another candidate from Blue Springs, and you you emerged victorious by a, by a pretty small margin. But you know, emerging victorious in that Republican primary is tantamount to election. Tell me a little bit about your experience running for Senate and kind of what you learned from that campaign. I think what's important here is, is number one, I, I, I've run tough campaigns. My very first campaign was against a Republican from uh, Lee Summit in a primary where he was from the Republican base. In fact, he was the president of the Republican club in Lee Summit. He was in the Rotary in Lee Summit. All the Republicans pretty much were in Lee Summit. I lived in Raytown, which was the Democrat part of the district. Uh, so. That was a tough race. We were we we won that race with 81% of the vote. Then we took out a Democrat incumbent. This run race was a, much of the same. It's just a tough race. We're going against a Speaker Pro Tem uh, that has twice as much money as you do. So the you're right. I was not in. I was not planning to run for that race. In fact, most of my races come. I join. I get in because people think that I'm the right person to run. And so what happened is is people uh, felt that that uh, Rep- Representative Pratt or Speaker Pro Tem Pratt were not, was not the right candidate. I looked at it. I thought um, he didn't necessarily have the same views as I did, and I wanted to make sure that we had the right conservative run. And so I, I got into that race, and we ran a very good race with half as much money, had a better message, and we were able to defeat him. And uh, your 2014 race wasn't as interesting, unfortunately, for political reporters because <laughs> you won without opposition i think from anybody so right. that must no have one, been a, no that must filed. have been that must have been kind of a nice uh, break given all the competitive races you've ran over the last few years is that a fair assessment it, it was very nice to ha- not to have to uh, actually go out and campaign as hard as i had in the past and my wife enjoyed the the time we got to spend together as a family i i'm sure she did and i'm glad that you got that time given your competitive nature um, so you're, you've been in the Senate now for a little over four or five years now. This is my fifth uh, session in the Senate. Fifth okay. session in the Senate. I think that one of the things that I noticed is when you first entered the Senate, you were kind of part of a group of conservative-minded senators who sometimes forced some changes on some pretty major bills. And I think that you've kind of emerged as, since then, kind of in your early years, as one of the people that handles some pretty major and, and weighty legislation. Tell me a little bit, though. I mean, that's me describing how you've kind of been in the Senate. How do you feel that you've kind of taken to this role of being a senator compared to being in the House? And how would you describe your role in that chamber? 
So, first of all, I, I really love the Missouri Senate. You can get involved in any issue uh, at, at any level and, and be as involved as you want with the issues. So, I think that one of the best jobs in the world in, in, in politics is, is to serve in the Missouri Senate. Uh, you, you really have a voice that you c- will be heard and people will listen to you. Uh, when we came into the, the Missouri Senate, I was wanting some to move the ball to the conservative side. And, and so myself and a few other senators got involved in, on a few issues and said, hey, this is, this is, this is big government and this, we don't want this. And so uh, that kind of got me out of the gate as a, as a conservative pushing conservative agenda. And uh, that worked well for me. Um, but as we transitioned, we want to we make bigger changes. And in order to do that, you have to pass legislation. So I, I made the transition to say, you know what, if I'm part of this, if I'm part of, the, if I'm at the table and able to voice my concerns, I don't always have to be the guy that stops things from happening. But I, I want to be at the table and, and my voice to be heard. And as long as I feel like I'm part of the process and can get those things done, and that also helps build relationships. And when you build relationships, then when you get bigger pieces of legislation, like the tax cut last year, people want to work with you. If you're always a no and you're always fighting people it's harder to get those big big pieces of legislation like the the tax cut or the unemployment uh, insurance reform bill that we did um, last year as well yeah that was going to be i was going to transition into the tax cut because uh, senator kraus was the handler of, of of the tax cut bill i guess last year and the year before it ended up getting vetoed in 2013 but um in 2014 um, it got vetoed again, but there was enough to override it. I just wanted to ask before we kind of transition to what's next after that, what did you kind of learn from that experience? Because it was definitely a situation where, you know, your your handling of that bill got a lot of attention and scrutiny. There was a lot of criticism of that legislation from Democrats, and it eventually got to the finish line after a, a whole lot of negotiations and progress. W- what was your big takeaway from that? Well, number one, that if you work hard and you have a vision and you're willing to listen to other people to try to understand where their points of views are, uh, you can often work through some problems and then get a bill to the final uh, final to the final stages. And we were trying to get the governor to sign it or let it become law without his signature. Um, obviously, that didn't work. In, in not getting that, we had to get one Democrat to come over on our side for an override. Uh, so I think the big takeaway is build relationships, work hard to try to understand everybody's point of view, and then craft a piece of legislation that is 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 well crafted. What we did with that bill in phasing it in with the triggers allowed people to come on board that did not vote for the override in 13 so that they voted for it in 14. We put a trigger of $150 million saying that the if, rev, if revenue is not increasing every year, then we, fa- we do, the next year's phase-in isn't, isn't take effect. Now, um, looking at the current situation, uh, this session, there has been less talk of any sort of tax cuts, uh, although um, Speaker Deal has made some passing reference to it. Uh, two of the big issues right now, of course, is uh, f- at, at, the, at this moment is photo ID, and also the right to work. As far as uh, our listeners on our side of the state, they're very interested in what's happening with that. Um, any thoughts either about your position, but also your analysis of what's going to happen or not going to happen on the Senate side? I, I, 
I'd love to get into that on on the tax side before we go there. The only thing that it, last year I had four bills vetoed. Three of them were overridden. Overridden. The only one that wasn't overridden is one that we're working on again this year is notification. And basically that bill is is very important. It just says that if if a business hasn't been notified that the Department of Revenue has changed the way they're implementing the tax laws, that they can't be held accountable for back taxes. Now, if they had been collecting taxes, they, they still have to pay those. It's just one of those things that we had a situation in, in my district where we had a, um, a business that had been in business for decades. Department of Revenue comes in and audits them, finds out that they're not collecting sales tax on lessons, uh, it was this gymnastic lessons, and then they, then in, he had to pay three years of back taxes. That's just not the right way to do business. I mean, he, he can't, he's in business working day to day. He's not reading Supreme Court rulings and, and trying to understand the, how that's going to impact his business. So we just think that the notification bill is a good way to protect um, people from um, the part, a rogue Department of Revenue trying to find revenue. So we think that's the right thing to go. But uh, voter ID is another bill that I'm carrying this year. I worked on it for the last couple of years. Uh, it's very important for us. I think that the Republicans just want to make sure we protect the safeguard, uh, the election process. And, you know, you have to have a photo, photo ID to buy tobacco, to buy alcohol, to buy uh, lottery tickets. In fact, if you want a government-paid cell phone at you know, they used to call them the Obama phones. You have to take a photo ID in to get that. So we have to have a photo ID for almost everything that, that almost everything now to cash a check. It just makes sense that we should have that photo ID when you go vote. Now, um, of course, the state Supreme Court has come down saying that the Constitution would need to be changed. And there's also the question of providing free IDs or providing access to the information people need, like birth certificates. Do you think there's going to be enough um, effort to get those provisions in or to cover the cost to provide those, or how do you see it? Well, absolutely. Uh, Number one, we got a two-step approach right here. Number one, we have to change the Constitution so that that the voters get an opportunity to say, hey, yes, we think voter ID is important. And number two, we need a bill that basically does the things that you you mentioned uh, that makes it where they get a free ID if they can't afford one, um, and and we've got that in the bill, and and or another op- alternative would be to validate who they are via, via their signature if they come in and, and vote. Now, I want to play devil's advocate and kind of bring up the the counter arguments to this, and I've been following this issue for a while, and I know Joe has as well. And the opponents of a of a government issue photo ID requirement will say, well, there haven't been widespread. Uh, instances of voter impersonation fraud, why do you need to take a step like this? And so I'd like you kind of to respond to that line of argumentation. You know, our races in in the state of Missouri are very close, and we need to make sure that we safeguard that election process. We don't need a situation where someone has identified, hey, these people aren't voting. And like in New, I think it was New Mexico, uh, a father went in to vote for their son because obviously the son was busy or wasn't interested in going voting. And when he went to go vote, um, the judge said, the election judge said, is this, is this you? And he said, yep, you were born in 1992. And he had white hair. And and he said, yep, that was me. That's me. And the judge said, no, I don't believe so. It's very hard to prove impersonation fraud if they only bring a utility bill in. There's a lot of uh, polls in my area um, that have a thousand people that vote in that polls. There's no way that the election judges can know everybody by name. And so we just want to make sure we protect the integrity of the election and we don't want to allow cheaters to, to steal elections. It, 
Is there any any particular reason why the General Assembly hasn't focused more on absentee voting? Because, frankly, if you look in the history, in Missouri and elsewhere, um, absentee voting is often where you have the more documentable fraud because uh, people are basically, I mean, in some cases there's been allegations and proven in some cases um, of people basically voting for others and taking those in, those absentee ballots, or, or voting for them and then it's mailed in. Is there any thoughts about um, any sort of re- um, more protections on absentee balloting? A- absolutely. I think that that's coming. I think the first step is voter ID. I think it's uh, popular among the people. I think that if you go out and talk to the people, they they want voter ID, Democrats and Republicans alike. So our step first is to, to pass voter ID. And then there's a lot of different ways you can go with absentee voting. Um, but so I think the first step is we're, con- we're focused on voter ID because we think that is a, uh, the right first step and then moving forward with absentee voting. So this has been an issue that, has, that the General Assembly has tried to pass. And when I say the General Assembly, I mean the Republican General Assembly. I mean, probably since I started covering Missouri politics in 2005 and 2006, yes. maybe even beforehand. And th- it was passed in 2006 and got thrown out by a court. And every year there's been attempts to, to pass it, especially under Nixon, just hasn't gone anywhere. What do you think are the big reason for the impediments to why this hasn't gotten to the finish line yet? Well, I think, that, I mean, number one, that the there's a number of Democrats that are opposed to it. Uh, they, they don't want it to go through. So we have a battle every year that we have to fight on this front. Yeah. Now, um do you, is there anything that might be different this session about it? I mean, the fact there are more, more re- Republicans now. I mean, do you feel that there might be a stronger effort to get it through? Or, um, again, it still has to go before the voters. Exactly. So, you know, I think that the, the effort is there to get it done this year. Um, I, I believe we could have potentially got it done last year, but we, we had uh, early voting uh, concerns with the initiative petition and, and – uh, uh, a number of concerns with that, so we passed our own early voting and it, um, referendum uh, that went on the ballot that obviously voters voted down. Yes, voted down pretty decisively. Right. So, do you think there'll be any can additional effort on uh, early voting, or do you think it's going to be dead in Missouri for a while? It, you know, I think that if we did early voting, it would have to be limited in 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 focus. Uh, so, I think it's a discussion we're going to have probably potentially with uh, voter ID. We'll see what the the, the the other side has to say when we get to the floor. Now, quick question on right to work. It passed through the House. Yes. It's in the Senate. What's next? I, You know, my understanding is is uh, it's going to pass out of committee, more than likely will pass out of committee and will be sent to the floor. And uh, I think that uh, Senator Richard has been very vocal on wanting to get it done. What, would you have any opinion on that, Bill? I, I believe that I'm looking forward to the debate on the floor and see where, where the discussion goes. Yeah, there's probably going to be a lot of debate, including like all the Democrats debating probably for until the end of time. Well, so. there may be some Republicans too. I keep hearing that there's some Republicans who really would would, would prefer not to have a vote on this. So we'll have to see. Any any thoughts about that, or do you think that's overstating you know, I think that, it? I think that's a good analysis. I think that there might be a couple of Republicans that, or at least you know, yeah, a couple of Republicans that probably will weigh in on the debate, and um, we'll see when it gets to the to the floor. We will see. It'll be prime time for uh, a lot of speech making. But let's transition into your future political plans. You announced that you were running for Secretary of State 
I don't know what, six to eight months ago? I don't exactly remember the timeline. July uh, 10th. July 10th. And at the time, you looked to be getting into a race against incumbent Secretary of State Jason Kander, who won a first term as Secretary of State in 2012, pretty narrowly yes. over Shane Scholler, a Republican from the Springfield area. Since then, though, uh, uh, Secretary of State Kander has decided to forego re-election and run for the U.S. Senate, which has, I think, dramatically changed that contest to a situation where you are probably planning a campaign on, you know, showcasing your background on one flank and also trying to convince voters not to re-elect somebody on the other. Now that there's no incumbent, how does that change the way you're, you're kind of positioning yourself for this for this job? Well, number one, I got in the race because I thought I was the right candidate, and I believe that I'm still the right candidate. It changes in the aspect of, in the state of Missouri, it's not easy to defeat an incumbent. Uh, statewide, I think it's happened one time in the last 40 years where an incumbent has actually lost. I was willing to take that challenge on because I think it's this position is so important when it comes to elections and, and pro-business atmosphere because I believe that we in government need to get out of the way and allow business to be successful. Um, but you're right. Now it's opened it up, and um, I'm likely to have a primary, and and then we'll have to deal with a Democrat that we don't even know who is yet. Yeah, I was just gonna say there, there, there. I don't even really think there's been like a lot of rumor mongering on who the Democrat is gonna be in that race. I mean, it's kind of a mystery. But almost minutes after uh, Kander announced his Senate race, our good friend Jay Ashcroft of St. Louis County announced that he was going to get into the contest. He ran for the state Senate. Um, in the St. Louis area, um, lost to Jill Shoup by, I think, three or four percentage points. He's obviously the uh, son of John Ashcroft. Um, you've been in primaries before. This isn't really new for you, but how, how does that kind of change that part of the race for you? Because it seemed like when you were running against Candor, it may have been a situation where maybe the Republicans may have rallied around you because as you said, it's difficult to beat an incumbent and having a primary is not going to be helpful. How does this change things as far as that's concerned? You know, I think that we're going to continue to run uh, on our history, what I've been able to accomplish in my personal life and then also what I've been able to uh, accomplish in the, in the General Assembly. And, and really, it doesn't change anything. We're still going to continue to travel the state and talk with um, both Republicans and Democrats from all over the state. So at this point, we're continuing to move forward, and um, we think we are the right candidate to be able to, to win this in November of 2016. Do you expect there may be more Republicans get in? I don't know. I mean, it's just it's you never you never know in these races, and we don't know what um, is going to happen with across the ticket. So I I, I have no I no no idea. So while political machinations are important, I mean, you are running for an office that is actually quite vital to the state. And while Secretary of State usually doesn't get as much attention in elections as say Governor, Attorney General, U.S. Senate. It actually serves quite a few important functions, whether it be, you know, the state's elections, whether it be registering businesses, whether it be regulating securities. Um, I've, I found when I was doing reporting on it in 2012 that, you know, this was not like a fluff job that people were running for. So what would you bring to the office that is different from either how Secretary Kander has run it or Secretary Carnahan ran it for her two terms? Well, I, I bring a background of, of small business and the focus on how we can make Missouri, get Missouri government out of the way of business. I believe that 
what my job is as Secretary of State, number, you mentioned a, a lot of te- areas, and a couple you missed was, was the he's, state libraries are also ran through the Secretary of State and the state archives. Yes, are, and for, 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 for full disclosure, my wife is a librarian, so I do follow the, the library aspect a little more closely than most people, but continue. <laughs> well, as a full the full disclosure, my father-in-law sits on a library board in Sedalia. We're, <laughs> we're all about full disclosure on this podcast, but continue. So, I, you know, I think that, that what I bring is, my business background, my my military background, and, and leadership to the office. I'm I'm going to focus on the things that are important. I'm going to make sure that we want number one, we protect our elections. I think that things like voter ID are important, and to make sure that the rules are being followed by uh, the election authorities around the state. Uh, number two, what can we do to make business more efficient and get out of the way of businesses so that they can be successful and create jobs. And then listen to the people that are experts in the areas that I'm that, that I'm not an expert in. Now, um, of course, Secretary of State, one of the key, probably one of the highest profile uh, aspects of the job, even though it may or may not take as much time as the others, is the whole issue of of voters and uh, dealing with election authorities, all the local election authorities. Is there anything that would affect how you deal with them that you think needs to be changed? Absolutely. I think the ele- local election authorities right now uh, feel like they're not being listened to. And, and as I have traveled the state and talked to a number of them and how I, I've carried a number of election bills, so I've worked with a number of them when I've carried those election authorities, they are currently feeling that they are left out there, to hang, kind of hung out there to dry by themselves without any support. Uh, I don't think that's the way we should work. I think the Secretary of State, being the Chief Election Officer's kind of works for them, but they also uh, is also responsible for making sure that they follow the law. Uh, I mean, what I mean by work for them is if they have a concern or an issue, they should bring it to the Secretary of State's office, and then we should research that information and get back with them on best practices and try to help them when they need help. We don't. My understanding of what's happening right now is some of them will call the Secretary of State's office and they won't get an answer. They won't get a return phone call or they won't get an answer. They'll just say, we che- check with your legal counsel. Um, I don't think that's the right way to, to go about uh, serving those election authorities. Is there a specific issue that's prompting a lot of this local uh, calls to the Secretary of State's office? Well, the, the one that comes to mind is the online voter registration. The concern with that was when when Secretary of State Kander implemented did, he had people sign in iPads with their finger and their their signatures were not matching the ones that were on file. So you might have moved, you know, across town or whatever and you're changing your address and you do it online, but your signature that currently is on file isn't matching the one that they, they register online. Um, I believe Wendy Noren um, out of Boone County had implemented an online voter registration that was successful and our, our current Secretary of State uh, wasn't working with her to understand the best way to implement that. That's just one of the examples of, of the lack of leadership, I think, underneath our current Secretary of State that, that highlights the fact that he's not willing to listen to the clerks. Would you continue online uh, registration? I, I, absolutely, but I want to make sure we do it in a right way, and I'm going to do it by listening to people like Wendy Noren that has implemented it and make sure that it's being done correctly. Um, for example, there's a couple ways you can handle it, and I'm not I'm not particular to say this was this is the right way or that's the right way, but one of them would have been that they register online, then we mail them a form, they sign it, and they mail it back, and then we have a handwritten signature which is is done, or we have a situation where if the 
you know, they sign the first time they come in to vote. That that currently is done um, on various reasons when you register to vote to validate your signature. So there's there's ways to do it. I'm not married to any one proposal. I'm willing to work with the clerks to identify the best way to move forward. Would you change the way the Secretary of State's office compiles ballot summaries? Because that was a big source of contention between interest groups and Republicans when Robin Carnahan was Secretary of State. I think it's kind of died down a little since Kander joined the office. Although there's some court cases. There's been some court cases de- still. It's yeah. it's always been kind of a contentious aspect of the office, regardless of, who, of who's there. Would you change the way the Secretary of State deals with that? Uh, you know, I, I'm willing to listen to others out there, and if they have a better idea of how to do things, I'm willing to listen and, and get feedback from others. So. Will, am I willing to change? Yes, if it needs to be changed. But if everybody's happy and thinks that the best way we have, we've got the best solution, um, I'm going to stick with what, what's there. So uh, I will tell you that as I talk to clerks, uh, Senator Roy Blunt uh, is the most favored Secretary of State that there's been in, in, in years. It's probably because he was a former uh county clerk and he really listened to the clerks so uh, i'm going to lean on those individuals like um senator blunt when it comes to expertise i'm going to say hey how did you handle things like this uh and and try to seek the best way to move forward i'm not uh i'm not i'm not a believer believer that it's got to be my way i want to listen to everyone and try to understand the best way to accomplish the task and make sure that we're doing it the very best way Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today and being on our show and letting us know a little bit more about yourself. Uh, The only other question I had is you said you're from Sedalia. Do you love the state fair as much as I do? I do. I tell you what, I grew up uh, when I was, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I worked at the Missouri State Fair every summer. I started off in a a corn dog stand, and I I did that for many many years and and i very much enjoy going there and uh seeing that seeing all all of the activities all the farm equipment seeing the the shows and uh it's just a good place to to be in during august i i will say that i do love the corn dogs at the state fair and i'm not just saying that to be patronizing i actually have had one so i'm mixed on the corn dogs but i do love the state fair when our kids were younger we used to make a trip every summer to go to the Missouri State Fair, because I I, I think it's a great treasure, and people need to check it out. Absolutely. So to close us out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the the senator on Twitter at... Yeah, Kraus at SOS. Thank you very much. Very good. Until next week, thank you for listening, and so long. (laughs) 